Well, good morning. You did better than the other crowd. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. It's very kind. I hope we can stay kind to one another through this process. I'll be kind to you. You be kind to me. I have a lot of stuff here. Just bear with me a second. Get all my stuff out onto the table, and we will be good to go. <clears throat> good. Is that, my, is that me? Okay. Anyway, good morning. My name is Steve Bateman. You heard Pastor Paul pray as well as uh, Teresa for what you're about to experience. I, uh, I can just kind of get out in front of that by saying that I am not a pastor here at Living Water Community Church. I'm not on staff here at Community Church. I attend here just like you do. For some reason or other, they still let me preach now and then, which I am grateful for. But I have told the other groups, actually I say it all the time when I get to preach, look, if you don't like what you hear from the pulpit today, that's okay. I'm not going to be back for a long time. <laughs> All right? So don't, don't make your assessments like, everything was good except the preacher, because I am not the preacher. All right? So please, if you are a first-time guest with us today, thank you for coming. I do pray that the Lord blesses you in this particular time of worship. And uh, in that light, can we just kind of go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this opportunity. It is a rich one, God, as we come together. And I pray, as I have always prayed in these situations, that God, somehow or another, in spite of my inadequacy, your word comes forward. It comes forward in a way that, by your Holy Spirit, who is active about us and within us, that it resonates in our souls and moves us, Lord, to love you more and take the active steps, which are just evidence of that love. And Father, I know that there are many things within me that can keep me from even experiencing the fullness of it, the sin which continues to reside there. But I, Lord, together with my brothers and sisters together here, fight against that. Fight against it in ways that there's just more capacity for Christ in me. For he who is in us is most certainly greater than he who is in the world. And I ask, Lord, that we just be filled up today with your spirit, and I just ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have been with us, you likely know that we have been preaching through Genesis, looking particularly at the family of Abraham, but we're going to pause here in Holy Week, okay? And we're going to just do a three sermons that deal specifically with the offices or the role of Jesus Christ. For, to, you know, when we think in terms of who he was and what he did, there in Christ is sort of the culmination of these three offices which were pivotal to the Jewish government when it was formed. You likely know, obviously, that to make that thing work, there was a king, there were prophets, and there were priests. Okay? The king had rule, right? But he was a shepherd king. He was not necessarily the owner of the people, but rather caring for the people who were of God. The prophet was the one who kept the king under control with regard to this is what God says, this is the word of God. And in all of that, you had the priests, which were always interceding on behalf of the people before God with the sacrifices and the like, coupled together with bringing God toward the people, if you will, interceding for him toward them prophet, priest, and king. These were the three offices that were anointed. 
in the Old Testament. You know, the breaking of the flask, the pouring of oil over one's head, indicative of this reality that somehow these people were called out and separated with special responsibilities in the territory of the kingdom. Okay? And that word, anointed, has some value to it. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, when you transliterate that, the word is Messiah. And when you fast forward into the Greek, the word is Christos. And so it's not too uncommon then that we begin to see Jesus the man as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One of Israel. So we're going to unpack that even a little bit more just to get you on board with who he was relative to those offices. And the author of Hebrews makes this huge argument over the whole thing with regard to he is superior to all of those offices, that he is the culmination of them. They all sort of spoke forward, if you will, toward the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who would come. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. Here we go with regard to Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you see how what the author is saying with regard to Christ? Right? He's simply saying that in the past, God sent men, prophets, to speak the word of God, but in these days he sent his son far superior. And he is the one who created the universe and upholds it by his word. That's a power and a rule and an authority which surpasses any king. He goes on to say that after making purification for sin, which was the role of the priest, and we know that to be the cross, he ascended and sat down at the right hand of majesty again to rule, but we don't want to miss the idea of priest. So what we're going to do today, I get king. I was dealt that card. <laughs> and then on Friday, when you come back in at 7 o'clock, we're, we're going to talk in terms of his role as a priest. And then also on Sunday, Easter Sunday, it'll be with regard to his role as a prophet. Okay? Everybody with me? Did I lose anybody? Good. Okay. So with that, that has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. That's just an introduction of the series. When we get into the sermon, to kind of begin looking at this idea of Jesus as king, we are familiar with the idea surrounding Palm Sunday. So if you will stand with me, I am going to read from the book of John. The Palm Sunday is recorded in all of the Gospels, but uh, here in John chapter 12, Beginning in verse 12, we have his record of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! 
And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he, he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. You may be seated. This passage, Fear Not, Daughter of Zion, comes from the book of Zechariah, where the prophet began talking in terms of a new era that was forthcoming, where God would move in such a way that he would conquer all of the enemies of Israel and usher in an era of peace and tranquility, right? And then on the other side of that, that there would be this great nation that continued to go on. And if you... If you read this as I read it, you begin thinking, what was wrong with the Pharisees? I mean, if they understood this passage of Scripture, and they witnessed Christ coming into town riding on a donkey, surely they got it. Surely they understood that this was the king who was going to come and conquer the enemies of Israel and bring in that new era of peace. You would think they would have gotten right behind the initiative, right? Or else been at the front of it with regard to, this is good news. And yet, they didn't see it that way. Instead, they said, we're not getting anywhere, guys. Right? Look, look, the whole world's going after this Jesus. And I think there's probably two things that are happening in their world that they're not comfortable with. One they're seeing that they're losing control of the people. And if they lose control of the people, then they're also going to lose their authority because Rome was counting on them to keep those fellows under control. Right? So their world was collapsing because a new one was being ushered in. Have you ever felt that way? That somehow or another your world is collapsing? That the things around you are so high in their pressure, so insurmountable, that you feel lost and out of control? Well, if you're like me, you have. If you're like most, you have. Right? But this is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he brings into the era, this time and space, the very truth of who he is, and that he is king over all things, and that our confidence really can't be in us, but it does have to be in him. So what I want to do, and I'm kind of going through this together with you, is, is let's take a look at that. If Jesus, through the eyes of the Pharisees, was not the king that they were looking for, nor was the one the people were looking for, what kind of king was he? What was the realm, or what is the realm over which Christ reigns? And then once we look at that, we'll take a second look with regard to why is he doing that? What's the reason behind that position that he holds? And given then the reign or the realm in which he is over, the reason by which he is over it, 
we'll look at our response in light of those truths. Okay? Good. Good. So what can we say with regard to the reign of Christ? Where does he reign? Well, perhaps one of the places we can look is in his response to Pilate. For Pilate was there on that particular day, and the people were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, that he has no right to live. And Pilate's saying, look, I've examined him. I don't see anything, any good reason to do such, right? What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. You know, he makes himself out to be a king. Well, that maybe got his attention. So he goes back into the building there to address Christ. And he simply says to Jesus in John 10, he says, look, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your own idea or does somebody tell you that? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? I don't know what you're doing. He says, he says your own people and your chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus responded, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Fascinating. If it wasn't of this world, what world was it of? And I would suggest to you that it was of the spiritual realm. That, that the kingdom over which Christ was in authority was an unseen kingdom, one that exists very real in its substance, but yet you and I can't take a peek at it and see where it's at with a land mass, with thrones and these types of things. Certainly was a kingdom, but it's spiritual in nature. It's spiritual in nature, and that's why he began to try to explain it when he had come. And do you remember how the whole coming of Christ was laid out? That John the Baptist, right, the guy in the camel skins, right, he heads out and he starts baptizing people and he has this continued message before them. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Start thinking differently because there's a kingdom that's at hand. It's coming. The fact is it's already here in some respects. And the people that were along the River Jordan, they said, I get that. What do we have to do? And he said, look, if you're getting money, don't take more than you're due. If, if, you're, if you're in a position of authority, don't use it to lord it over people in such a way that you oppress them. There was this high ethical component of John's message. Do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Continue to do the right thing. And then Christ comes. John baptizes him. And what's the message of Christ? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes on to say, this is why I came. To preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel itself is wrapped up in the reality of the kingdom is at hand. It's here. He says, that's why I came and I got to preach it here and then I got to go to other places to preach it. And so what I believe is happening is John's saying you got to do the right thing. And without Christ, you can't do it. And so behind John, with the, the mountains laid low and the valleys raised up and the plain laid out, 
Christ comes as the means by which you can do the right thing. And without him, it's not possible. And that's good news. You get that? You get that? So, but he has to go on. He's got to try to explain, hey, this kingdom, this kingdom that I am over, how can I explain it to you? It's, it's a place where flesh and blood can't inherit it, right? It can only be inherited by those who have been born again, born of the Spirit, born of the water. That the, when he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says, I don't get that. You mean i got to crawl back up into my mother's belly? He says, no, don't you get it? You have to be born again. You have to be recreated. It's a, it's a place where where it's not about eating and drinking and these types of things that our physical needs are all about. Rather, it's a place that talks in terms of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an eternal kingdom, right? That which is seen is temporary. That which is unseen is eternal. It's an eternal kingdom. And it cannot be shaken. And ultimately, it'll overcome the kingdom of the world. He promises that. It's, it's like a mustard seed, that, like the tiniest of seeds, that when you cast it onto the ground and it begins to grow, it takes over everything. Right? It's, it's like yeast, that when the woman puts it into the dough and she begins to knead it, it fills the whole thing up. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a farmer who goes out and sows seed into the ground and the wheat begins to rise, but the weeds come up alongside of it. And his workers say, what do we do? How do we deal with this? Do you want us to try to fix it? He says, no, just let them both grow up together. Because at some point there's going to be the harvest and a separation between the wheat and the weeds. We're going to wrap up those weeds, toss them into the fire, and then the wheat will survive. He was forecasting what ultimately is the end, right? When the angel comes and the believers and the unbelievers have grown up together and at some point there'll be a separation out of those in this kingdom world and the believers will go on to shine in bright lights of righteousness and the unbelievers will be cast into the fire. It's just a truth. It's just what Christ is saying. It's how it works. This kingdom, and you, if you begin, just go into your whatever you use, Google or something like that, and get into your Bible and just Google kingdom, kingdom of God. And, and let that define for you what it is, and maybe perhaps your mind will change with regard to what it is. Because we're always talking about advancing it, and we should probably know what it is if we're going to advance it, right? And how the gospel lines up with it as well. But it is an unseen kingdom. It's one in which... Um, Paul wrote about when he was talking to the Ephesians when he talked in terms of putting on the whole armor of God you remember what I'm talking about there for he talks in terms of you know we don't we don't wrestle with flesh and blood rather we wrestle against principalities if you will he begins saying that we wrestle against uh, rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You don't see any of that, but it's real and it's a battle going on that you and I are engaged in. And what he says is what you've got to take up to fight it is equally invisible in many ways. Right? You've got to 
put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, right? You know, the helmet of salvation, the feet shod with the gospel of peace. What do those things look like? They're invisible. We get that. We know that, right? He says, you got to do that. And above all, grab the shield of faith, the only thing that's defensive in this battle, that you might resist the fiery darts of the devil. We fight against the unseen with the unseen. But yet, that which is unseen has its seen evidence, right? When, when the author in Hebrews was writing about our faith, did he not say in chapter 11 that faith is the substance, the real thing? The substance of things hoped for? Faith has power. It's real. It's a thing. It's the substance of things hoped for. The, the evidence, the proof of things not seen. And we have to demonstrate faith if we're going to win the battle that really engages our soul and causes us to be in despair and to worry and to be anything other than at peace. Agree with me? And here's the good news. Christ is over all of that. The Bible says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He also says that, look, you've got to make a decision because anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Anyone who seeks to have fellowship with the world can't have fellowship with God. It's a choice. It's digital. You're in or you're not. And if indeed the whole world is under the control of the evil one, what hope do we possibly have? Well, the truth is the evil one is under control of our king. And that's where our hope resides. He is king of kings, lord of lords. The he cast out demons with his word. They cow down to him. Who do you want to have your confidence in when it comes to fighting against the things in your soul? You or him? May I make a suggestion? Trust him. Now, if Christ has domain and, and uh, over the spiritual world, is that it? I mean, are we just kind of left there with regard to, I got to trust him in the things that aren't seen? I dare say no. For he is also over the physical world. How can that be? Because he created it, right? And if he created the universe, he is not under its command. He commands it, right? I mean, that's what he was trying to prove to us in the miracles that we read about. That every one of them was to give evidence of the unseen. That he was indeed the Son of God. That he could only do these things because he had created all things and everything was taking its cues from what the commander-in-chief was saying. That's, that's how he responded to the Pharisees even. Where one time he was talking in terms of being the Son of God. Right? And I'm going to take you to John. You don't have to follow, but you can if you like. I'm in John chapter 10. And Jesus is having this confrontation again with 
the Pharisees. And I'll begin reading and then I'll bring a slide up so you can see where I'm at. He says, the Jews picked up stones, in verse 31, to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me for? And the Jews answer him, it's not for the good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, right, set apart, anointed, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? But then he goes on in this kind of understanding way. He says, look, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they responded just as you would expect. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. What is Jesus saying? And I believe what he's saying, if you cannot grasp the reality of the unseen and, its re and the fact that it's very real, can you not at least start with what you see that begs the question, where did that come from? Right? I mean, Christ's ability to do the miracles was the testimony that he was indeed the Son of God. He created gravity, it's a natural law. And then he goes and walks on water, right? He created gravity and he ascends into the heavens. He created the reality that, you know, only five loaves and two fishes go so far, and yet he feeds 5,000 of people. He, he understands sickness. He understands it's a result of the fall. But by his word, healing takes place. The lame are able to walk. The blind see. The deaf hear. At his word or touch. At his word, the demons are cast out. They even beg him to have a bit of mercy on them. And he sends them into a squadron of pigs and off the cliff they go. Everything takes its cues from its creator. He is over all things. This, this reality of, of being able to speak to the storms and they are calmed. Where the disciples fished all night and he says, fish over there, we did that. Don't do it again. Boom, you can't pull the net in. When Peter says, hey, do, you know, I told them that we don't pay taxes. Well, you know, we got to pay taxes. So Jesus says, go ahead and do some fishing, Peter. The first one you pull out, grab the coin out of its mouth and go pay them for me and for you. Which would be really nice this day, right? <laughs> April 14th. <clears throat> he had control over it all, right? He had control over the physical domain, control over the spiritual domain. He is king over it all. And there's something, at least in the mystery of, of, the, of the names of Christ, right? Because we have Jesus, who, who we teach fully man, no question about that. Christ, fully God. We have, we have Jesus, Son of God, thinking in terms of the territory of the divine, and Son of Man, 
thinking in terms of the physical. Right? We have, we have these, these words that convey to us that Jesus had two kingdoms that were being converged together for one purpose. But the question is, what's the purpose? What's the reason for this? And I would dare say it's really for, in some respects, that third kingdom. It's for the sake of the church over which he is the head. Now, when I say church, I'm not thinking about Living Water Community Church and all those that are around me. For this is certainly the vehicle by which something is happening in that you are becoming saved and reconciled to the Father. If we were to kind of map out this big idea of what Jesus' role is, it kind of goes like this. God created the garden, created Adam and Eve. There was fellowship, the ignorance of sin, until such time that the apple was eaten, where that knowledge came to play. From that, corruption enters in, death enters in, sin enters in, and we got troubles, right? But it wasn't to be forever, because the garden was, to some degree, a microcosm of what was intended to be which was that at one day, far in advance, that baby's going to be recreated in a place where there are no more tears and no more sorrow. There is no more darkness. There is nothing that is evil that resides. That's heaven. That's the new earth, if you will, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. And in the in-between is making that process real, very much one person at a time, by doing the same thing in your life and my life, reconciling you unto the Father, right? Bringing you back into a fellowship with Him who created you, and then also saving you. Kind of purging away the sin to make more capacity for Christ. And here's the good news about that. If that's His plan, if that's His purpose, how does that align itself with your plan and your purpose? Are you on the same page with Him? Are you all about what he's about? Are you really singing with me, take all my heart and all my soul? Or are you holding back a little bit? Or a lot? Or you wouldn't even consider this? And I would, I would dare say we all struggle somewhere on that spectrum, right? We all struggle. Because we do what God has done and we think we are God. First, we kind of create our own little world, Right? We build our little bricks around the perimeter. We call it our own, right? We have our own values, our own rules of how to work. And we try desperately to convince everybody else that our world's the right one and theirs is the wrong. And the more we can get citizens of our territory, the better we feel about ourselves, right? I got news for you. Your worldview ain't right. You know why? Because I can ask your neighbor what theirs is and it differs. And if we start taking that around the table and figure out who's got the right worldview, there's too many to pick from. And you can't all be right. So we have to sort of submit our worldview and our thinking to the one that is right. And it's the kingdom that exists beyond us. It is no longer the kingdom of Steve, right? Where I pray, dear God, come into my kingdom of Steve and make my life better. That's not going to work. I can't even count on him to help me there. 
right? Because if my will is contrary to his will, how can I even think that he's going to come down and make my will happen? I have to submit my will unto him. And if I do, I can be absolutely confident that he will move heaven and earth, not even on my behalf, but on behalf of the plan which is far superior than mine. You get that? It's the same thing that we teach in business, 101, right? You got a mission statement. You got a vision statement. And we always try to get our employees to agree that the mission and vision is bigger than any one of us individually, right? We even think that we have the, the courage as employees to tell the boss, you ain't doing the right thing, John, because our mission says we got to do Well, they'll fire you, right? Because even though the mission statement's there, they got their own world. You know that. They created their own kingdom. Oh, my gosh, I hope I don't have a business owner. in the. I love you. I love you. But it is, it's so hard for business owners to, to deal with that, right? Because they've invested so much of themselves into the thing that they can't differentiate themselves from the thing. It's who they are. And, and, and yet, we do the same thing. We identify with our world. The only way I can feel comfortable in that is if I can get you to see me the way I want you to see me. And I spend all my time trying to please you. And I can't do it because I can't please everybody any of the time. Because I'm a mess. So are you. So we're in good company. But I can dedicate myself to pleasing God and Him alone. And when I do that, I am so much a better husband. I am so much a better father. I am so much a better son. I am so much a better person because I have finally given up what I created and what I am dependent upon for my own identity and just let it go and embraced a bigger mission than me. And I am on the path that Christ has laid before us to walk. And we walk it by faith. And life is so much better. And we are no longer having to be confident in my cleverness or my creativity. I am solely confident in the goodness of God whose plans are going to work. And there's not a single doubt that it won't happen just the way He said it would. And you know what? I'm even willing to die for that. Would you be willing to die for that? Because that's what you got to do, right? Pick up your cross daily, follow me. You got to die to live. That's all that it's being said. You got to die to your own world, your own, your own territory, your own identity outside of the kingdom of God. The identity is found only in our being absorbed up into Christ. His righteousness blanketing us in such a way that even the Father, when He sees you, has to look through the Son to do it. And when that happens, we have so much confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him who died for you. That's the reason and begins to work us through to the response. And I really just have two things in mind here, and I've already kind of obviously tripped over into the territory of if I am going to respond properly, 
I really have to give up control. Okay? Just have to give it up. The, 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 the hard thing that happens there is the unknown of coming on the other side of that, right? And sometimes God in his goodness will, will orchestrate events to the point where you actually come to the end of yourself and you don't really have a choice. Between then and that point, we often think that God doesn't love us because he's not making things happen for us the way we want to, but it is love. Why would the Father want anything less for you than the best? And oftentimes what we want is so much less than the best, right? I spent most of my adult life chasing after my career. I, I camped it out in a lot of different ideals. You know, I'm the youngest of four boys. None of them went to college. My mom, she raised us. And so I felt like, you know, I needed to either prove something to them, but the truth of the matter is I needed to prove something to myself. So as a young man, I went to college at night. I got my engineering degree. And I really thought that together with that engineering degree, as well as some, some good background in the plant and, you know, sort of a blue-collar, white-collar mix, I could make something of myself. Huh? Sound familiar, right? And so I did. Honestly, I, I, I did what they told me to do. You know, develop your plan, work your plan, work your plan, work your plan. And that's all I did, right? I got my engineering degree, and I, I discovered that people would pay me more money and give me more titles if I was willing to move. So I thought, that sounds like a good plan. So we just picked up and moved. We left Harrisburg, right? Went to Warren, Pennsylvania for seven months. My wife said it's really cold and it doesn't smell nice up here. Hope nobody's from Warren. And um, so I'm going back to Harrisburg. You can stay. We'll have a long-distance relationship. It'll all be good. Now, I really wanted my career. I did. I worked hard. Engineering degree took me over 10 years to get, right? But uh, my marriage was more important to me. I'm a good soul. So I called a recruiter, and I up, left there, went down to South Carolina. I was in South Carolina for three years. I left South Carolina, came back up to York, Pennsylvania. I was there for a year and a half. I left York, Pennsylvania, went down to Charlotte for 16 years, and it was all about the career. And I had ascended all the way up to the very point where I was absolutely convinced I was going to be president of the company. All right. The year was 2000, 2001. We were in an industry that supplied products to the Internet people. And if you remember back then, if you were around, the Internet was booming. Right? It was going to change the world. Everybody wanted lots of things, and we were willing to sell them. And so we had orders out the backside. Gosh, I really thought this was going to be the one that was going to be recorded. And um, suddenly the orders went away when the Internet bubble burst. We lost millions of dollars in orders, right? So what happened here over the course of a few, a few weeks is everyone in leadership lost their job. I was the last one. My boss finally looked at me and said, we don't need you here anymore. Talk about crushing. And I'm, I was so close to the brass ring. I was going to be president. It was going to be on my business card. I was going to show it to my mom. <laughs> and that man took it from me. I couldn't believe it. And for five months, I wrestled through why. I was out of work. My mortgage was $2,000 a month. And my income after 13 weeks of severance was nothing. I finally began to pray a bit more rightly because my first prayers, my very first prayers, was, Lord, you know 
That's the wrong thing. You know that I worked really hard for that job, and you know that I'm a better president than the one that's in there. said, Lord, I need you to move him out of that chair and put me in it. It was the right thing. Who could question it? I felt that I was fired for unjust reasons. But you see what my prayer life was? Lord, I want something, give it to me. Right? And I could justify it all over the place. But something different was happening. Something different was regard to don't have a job for five months and you get a bit desperate. And my prayer life transitioned all the way over from that one to saying, Lord, I don't care what I do. I'll flip burgers. I'll sweep floors. I don't care what it is. I just want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because you know what? If I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to something, I am going to dedicate it to something that no one can take from me. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the other thing that I did. And I said, you know what, Lord? I'm not going to make a plan. I have planned my whole life out asking you to bless it. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'll share the gospel. You work the plan. Whole different territory, right? Just do it where you're planted, as they say. My life took on a whole new dimension. For the first time in my life, on the heels of that, I felt like I was where I belonged. I did get another job. I worked it for 14 months until I was able to go to seminary. And after seminary, I thought I was going to plant a church because, you know, if you're leading a business, you certainly can plant a church, right? Piece of cake, relatively speaking. Guy says to me, man, I can't see you planting a church. There goes my plan. I wasn't really good at it yet. But have you ever thought of workplace chaplaincy? Never heard of it. I knew Father Mulcahy, but I never heard of anything else other than the territory's chaplains. Oh my, it was so beautiful. For 10 years, I was going back into the workplace, which I very much loved because I love, I love processes. I love how they can speak into the lives of people and give them a good process and they have a fuller life in some respects. But I wasn't going in to make widgets anymore. I was going in to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was doing it in a territory where people were suffering. And they had nobody to trust. And as clergy, at least they would lean into you. And you didn't have to worry about giving them your opinion of this. or your. It was all about the Word of God for you. Take it or leave it. He loves you, wants the best for you. At some point in your life, you're going to have to figure out that you need to trust somebody more than yourself. And it's Him. That's what I want for you. That's that, that experience of letting go gives so much capacity for being filled up by him who's got you, right? The unwillingness to let it go brings about all kinds of gravity of, of stress and anxiety and troubles. The, you know, one of the tools that I would give to you is nothing different than what you already have you have to pray this way. You have to pray in a sense that in your prayers, you bring unto God the root cause of why you're struggling. Because certainly every one of us has trouble. Jesus promised you'd have it. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, he says, right? Why? Because I've overcome the world. I got this. So one of the things I learned fairly quick is that in my prayer life, I needed to exchange it out for a better one. Because when I went to prayer, it was along the lines of, where do I start? 
Let's see. The church has taught me to pray for other people. I can do that. John's sick. Harry needs a new job. Shirley's struggling with her kids. Lord, can you fix all those things for him? That's too short. No good prayers, less than five minutes. Um, oh, pray for leaders. Oh, yeah, and, and fix our president, fix our Congress, fix it, you know, do this, do that, Lord. Okay, I'm good. So I would counter people like that, and i say, well, don't you pray for yourself? And you know what they'd say is no? Like there was something built into their psyche that said, I shouldn't pray for myself. The Bible tells me to put myself aside, right? You've got to be praying for yourself. You've got to be unearthing those things that are deep within you that need to be reckoned before God. You need to repent of any thinking that says, I don't need to pray for myself. Because that's where you've got to start. You truly do. You know, actually, the truth of the matter is, as the Puritans prayed, they started with God, our Father who art in heaven. Right? Start with God. Hallowed be thy name. Holy are you. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But where do they go to next? Give us, give me what I need today, right? And forgive me as I forgive others, right? That portion is where I'm at in my prayer life. You've got to come before the Lord and say, Father, you know I need a job. You know that my mom needs healed. You know that my children are off the rail. You know all these things. What do I need, though? What do I need to be able to see these circumstances through the same eyes that you see things? Not just look at them in ways in which they are collapsing my world, but rather, dear God, what are they bubbling up in me that I need so much you to handle because I can't? And you'll typically find it's pride, fear, that's what you got to go and get, right? Because pride says, God, I don't need you, I got this. And fear says, and I really don't even trust you. But in your prayer life, when you place these things before God, he will speak to you in the very life that he's given you. He knows you a lot better than you know yourself. He will bring to you, if your ears are open to listen to him, the words that you need to hear, the visions that come to mind with regard to why you are the way you are. And then he'll even give you the steps to take to quit being that person. And all you need to do is listen. All you need to do is listen. All you need to do is act upon what you hear. Now look, I am not speaking super spiritual here. I do believe God speaks. I do believe that it requires us to be listening. We have to go quietly before him and be wide open to what he tells us, right? And oftentimes if God speaks to you like he speaks to me, it's in really short sentences, right? He either reminds me of something he said to me before or he speaks to me something like, you don't trust me. It's like, yeah, I know I don't, and I got to, but that's, the, that's, that's what compels me to take the steps, right? But if you're uncomfortable there, as you ought to be, what does his word say? Are those the right steps to take? What is built into your motives? Trusting God? That's good, because you are at least in the same place where he created you to be. If you're not comfortable there, run it by your brothers and sisters, Right? Listen to them. Compile those three at least with regard to, I think this is what the Lord wants me to do, and then do it. Don't just pause there. Take a step of faith 
And if this becomes built into your rhythm, you'll find yourself walking that way. And if you are walking that way, there is nothing to be afraid of. But even God says, fear not. First off, he says, I know you're afraid. Fear not, because I'm with you. And I made you a promise. I promise never to leave you nor to forsake you. And don't trust even upon your degree of faith. All you've got to do is have a little more faith and God will move on behalf of whatever you want him to do. That's not the way it works. In Timothy, when Paul was writing, he talked in terms of if, if, you know, if we have died with him, we will reign with him, right? But he also goes on to say if we deny him, he'll deny us. But what's that last one say? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he just can't deny himself. See, God is at work in you to bring about to completion that good thing that he began. Your trust is not to be in you. It's to be in him. All you need to do is continue to trust, to yield into what he has for you and let your world behind. Why do we worry? Why do you worry? Doesn't your heavenly father know that you need the things that you worry about? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that stuff. He'll take care of it. But we want to hold on to it. And it just wears us out. And we are tired. And we are heavily burdened. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, because I am humble and gentle in spirit, and you'll find rest for your soul. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you know, as I look down, you got you a pretty good yoke there. And I, I, see, the, I see the ground you're plowing, and, you know, it's not the one I would have you on, but by doggone it, I'm a God, I love you. I'm coming down, I'm going to put my head inside you, and we're going to go to the scale. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't put his head in the adjoining yoke hole to do what you want him to do. You have no command over Christ. You cannot make him do what you want him to do. He can make you want, do what you want to do, but oftentimes he chooses not to, so you finally learn, you know what, my plan's not the best. Take my yoke upon you. My head is right beside yours. Let me plow the ground. You just come with me and you'll find rest for your soul. You see the difference that I'm trying to talk to? Our response is we must have to give up control, give up our world, just give it all in with regard to, you know what, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I can confess before you, Lord, I am a mess. I don't care anymore what the people around me think. I am done trying to make them like me. I don't care. I only care about whether you like me and you've promised that you love me God, take my mess and do the very best you can with it, right? Allow your heart to give in to what you're fighting against. Go ahead and be poor in spirit, for blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Go ahead and let your heart be broken, for God will never, never despise a heart which has been broken and contrite. Go ahead and trust that he will give you the desires of your heart, because you're willing, you're willing to love him, and delight yourself in Him. That's the condition upon which you get what you want. And why would God not give you what you want if what you want is what God wants? The only time He would hold it back 
is somehow or another, you're not either getting to the point where he would want you to be, or there's something better for you in it. Believe me, I wanted the job of the president. I was a Christian. There was no good reason in my world that he couldn't give it to me. But there was something better in it. And we have got to be willing to pay the full price associated with giving up our world and dying to it. Because in the death has come a freedom in Christ where we can say like Paul, the whole world has been crucified to me. I don't care about that whole world anymore. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care if you like me or not. The whole world has been crucified to me. What does that mean? He's empty? He's got no purpose? No, he goes on to say, and I have been crucified unto Christ. I have but one thing, which is the most important thing to me, because it's the same thing which is most important to him who created me. I love him. My life is in him. I have been crucified with Christ. Hence, it's no longer me that lives, but he who lives in me. You get that? Is that hard to give up? You betcha. You betcha, right? You've got to give up control, and you've got to give up authority. You just don't have any authority. You really don't. You know, even, even Christ, when he went before Pilate, and Pilate says, look, don't you see who I am? Don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you or let you go? And what did Jesus say back to him? You know, you wouldn't have any authority if my Father in heaven hadn't given it to you. So you know, that boss that you don't like, God gave him to you. Yeah. He gave him to you for your good and his glory. You can work really hard to ascend into a position of authority if that's your bent, right? You can, you can play out the idea of being an idea, you know, the great parent by trying to have authority over your children so that you can make them do what you want them to do so that people look at them and think you're good. It just doesn't work. I have discovered kids have their own minds. If you're chasing after riches, you've got to swap that out, Right? You got to swap that out. In the kingdom of God, there is an entirely different economy that has nothing to do with money and everything to do with fruit. Everything to do with fruit. Jesus says, you know, there's a fruit, there's a tree, it's not bearing fruit. What are we going to do? We can cut it down, throw it away. It's not good for anything. And what is fruit? Well, it's unseen in its core, but demonstrated in how we interact with others, right? What is fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In your prayer life, if you're lacking in any of those, ask for them. And if you ask, you'll receive. Right? Jesus promised that, right? But can you allocate yourself to some degree knowing that the will of God is for you to bear fruit that you live your life in such a way that all the circumstances that come and converge on you are meant to enable you to do that? So that when somebody has done you wrong, you now have the opportunity to forgive or not to forgive. Right? But what does Christ command us? Keep forgiving until the cows come home. But you say, no. Vengeance is mine, you say. Right? And so you try to get them back. That's that's a whole different world. That's your world. That's not the kingdom of God. 
Are you not a citizen of the kingdom of God? Can you not trust him enough that if you do what he says to forgive, that he will do the right thing and heap some coals on that person's head? Come on, that's what I'm trying to compel you to do. Give yourself over to the kingdom of God that has a whole different economy, a whole different set of values, a whole different purpose than any other kingdom, especially this world, which is a counterfeit of it, trying to give you all those things, and I promise you they will never deliver. Trust me on this or keep going. It's up to you, but I promise you, by the power of, of, of God's holy world, it, word, rather, it will not work. It will not work. And can you not testify to the same? If that's you, how's it going? Right? How's it going? Christ is in command of the spiritual world, the physical world. He has been given that command to bring all things together for the glory of God. And then once it's all packaged up and it's all done well, he hands it back over to the Father. New heavens, new earth, everything that we long for now is fulfilled then. And between now and then, we have two responsibilities. We need to have fellowship with the Father. We need to go to him in prayer and learn what is keeping us from being fully invested in him or keeping him from being fully invested in us. And we've got to work on that. We have to, as Paul said, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, you have been saved by the grace of God. It's by faith, which is a gift, so that no one can boast that they somehow earned it. But what are you going to do with it? You've got to keep on working it. You've got to keep on trusting. And as you do, you will have the abundant life in its fullness that Christ came and died for you for. Or you can stop and say, no more. You've come this far but the rest of my heart's mine. You can't live in that tension. And God will continue to bring circumstances in the territory of discipline, if necessary, to get you to where you want to be and he's created you to be. Fair enough? All right, let me pray. Father, I do indeed thank you for the day. I thank you for your holy word. I pray, dear God, that in spite of my inadequacy, somehow or another, Lord, that word mingled with your Holy Spirit has moved people to trust you more and that even as we walk out of this place, God, that they will indeed take those steps of faith. For how does a man or a woman know that they can trust you unless they trust you? And God, if they trust you and they take those steps as fearful as it might be, I pray, dear God, you will quickly affirm that they are on the right path. So that they not just take one step, but one step behind another in faith. And they are walking by faith and not by sight in fellowship with you who loves them, has their back, and will move heaven and earth on their behalf because they love you through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.